gonna try my damnedest to talk about this episode, but it's actually a really hard one for me to talk about. Can I level with you guys for a second? Um, I know this is gonna sound weird. I'm sitting here. I've got a nice, expensive, you know, nice uh, jacket. I've got my button down. I've got a custom-made pin. This is a recent addition. You know, nice glasses, shaved, cleaned. I've I've had a shower uh, in the last day. I usually shower at nights before I go to bed. It's much more comfortable that way. Many years ago, I actually lived on the streets. I can still picture it. I can still feel the... uh, I guess that would be concrete. As it jabbed into my back. At that one angle, you know, as you kind of find that little part there. To kind of hide out of sight. Because nobody likes you just laying around. And people will kick you out of anywhere you try to go. Trust me. So... One of the big points of this episode is homelessness and joblessness. And I'm going to try to discuss those topics as best as I can. But before I really go into this, i got to share something real quick. So for those of you not aware, in real life, there are there's a thing called homeless spikes. I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, by good or misfortune or whatever, when I was homeless... Uh, I didn't I didn't live in a place where homeless spikes were a problem. It's becoming more and more of a thing in the last 20 years where, you know, if those of you don't know what a homeless spike is, um, benches being designed in a way so that they're cooler and thus not comfortable to lay on or sections of terrain like little inlets or, or sidewalks or whatever, having little bumps on them. That's the spikes. The whole point is they're designed to make it very, very uncomfortable to the point of actually causing pain to try and rest there or relax there or sleep there for the night. Thus, it is a method by which to con- uh, co- to, to fight back, so to speak, against homelessness, right? Get those bums off the street, right? Obviously, I'm a little bit... Uh, biased here from my perspectives on the matter, but I do have to admit that regardless of my own bias, that really does not feel like a good allocation of resources to me, right? Uh, Sorry. October 14th, 1994, the Riordan administration uh, put forth a petition to set aside a section of the L.A. industrial downtown in order to um, wall it off and turn it into a safe haven and sanctuary for people who didn't have jobs or homes. This is not a joke. This is a real-life thing that really happened. By cosmic coincidence, the people, you know, Deep Space Nine was actually working on the development of this episode when that real, actual thing was put forth, and that idea was something they were positing in L.A., um, this has also been a problem in Santa Monica for many, many years. In fact, this has been a problem in San Francisco as well. I could speak on that one from personal experience also. Um, and yes, I know these places are all in California. That's mostly coincidence. I, I don't really know what it's like in other places except for Seattle. It's the only other place I know. Uh, and Pittsburgh. <clears throat> so, yeah, before we really dig into the homeless jobless thing. Let's let's save the heavy stuff for last. Uh, let's talk about how the time travel is stupid and dumb in this episode. Because the time travel in this episode is stupid and dumb. Uh, this is some of the most timey-wimey crap I have ever seen Star Trek pull off. In case you're missing this. So here they are. 
in the present, and they beam the people back into the past. Now, Star Trek has occasionally done this, whoops, we accidentally went to the past and altered time thing before. Uh, they did that in um, uh, Sitting on the Edge of Forever, right? They were in mid-conversation, and then they go through the, you know, uh, McCoy goes through the thing, and then he lo- they instantly lose communication because time has been altered. Like that. The only reason they're unaffected is because of the, the bubble that the Guardian itself is putting out, which affects Time Traveler's Exemption Clause. For those of you not aware, I should talk about this. Time Traveler's, time Traveler's Exemption Clause is a concept which refers to the idea that the Time Traveler is unaffected by the changes in time travel. Now, sometimes it's basically just a hand wave. You can go back and change however much you want. Your memories and you are never altered. Sometimes there's something that deliberately creates such a thing, like the aforementioned Guardian Field. In this very episode, uh, the chroniton bubble around the Defiant is what prevents them from being altered by the changes to the time stream. But it's not... I, I, I can't put into words how stupid and dumb it is that they send people back into the past and then everything proceeds as normal, as if absolutely nothing changed, and, and then all of the sudden, history is changed. That's, that, there's so many levels at which that doesn't work. I, I'm not even having a good... I, I, ah, it's breaking my brain. I can't talk about how stupid that is. Because that's stupid. <laughs> I've seen Bill and Ted do better versions of time travel than that. I've seen Voyager. No, that's, 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 that's wrong. Um, I mean, I have. I have seen freaking... Uh, Back to the Future do a better version of time travel than that. And Back to the Future at least had this wave idea, which was already kind of dumb. But, you know. And it irritates me, especially since they're on the Defiant. Can I just complain about that again? They just keep taking the Defiant places. Why are they doing this? Keep in mind the people who are on this. We've got Cisco, Bashir, Dax, Kira, O'Brien, Odo. Um, I think that's everyone. That's pretty much the entire... That, in fact, that is the entire senior staff. Who's on Deep Space Nine right now? <laughs> right? And the best part is the whole reason... I'm, I keep saying right. I'm sorry. The best part is the whole reason they're here is to do have attend this meeting and discussion about the Dominion threat. You know, the Dominion which they just left the, the, the door to the Gamma Quadrant wide open and banging in the wind. Because they took their only warship back to Earth which is not nearby, that's not a short trip, so that they could talk about the Dominion. I'm sorry, I do like aspects of these two episodes. I, I legitimately do. But the, the, the way they get to from point A to point B is ludicrous and stupid. Now, some of you may remember that I've talked over in Voyager uh, in something that I actually refer to as the cloud effect. The idea is that sometimes a work of fiction does something ridiculous and nonsensical and stupid, and I'm willing to forgive that as long as they actually do something good with it, like the cloud. Um, Now, I mention this because, as I mentioned back then, and I have been slowly, you know, making my point and showing my evidence ever since, Star Trek does this a lot, where we have a ridiculous premise that nevertheless leads to a good episode. But they made, in my opinion, they made two very major issue problems with this episode. Now, the first problem is the way they approach time travel. What should have happened is basically the same thing as in uh, City on the Edge of Forever, or for that matter, First Contact pulled a similar thing. 
They beam them down, and then it's like, oh, we can't get a hold of Starfleet. And they try to piece together what the hell's going on. They notice the only nearby signals are from the Romulans. That was a nice touch. I like the idea that the Romulans in the absence of Starfleet would have slowly expanded into this area of space. That's cool. Moving on. But, you know, they're slowly losing contact. And, ah, because the effects and change of the time should have happened immediately, right? And then... You know, they, they, like, they try to figure out what the hell's going on and blah, blah, blah. And that's the first and uh, simplest way they could have solved this. Now, there's another way they could have solved this, too. The other way is to completely remove the changes to the time stream entirely. This is how I would do it, personally. Of the three options I'm going to posit, this is what I would have done. If you said, okay, we have to have time travel and we have to go back to the Bell Rites, use Type 1 time travel, not Type 2 time travel. Uh, I should explain really quick. Type 1 time travel is time is a linear line. That means anything you do time travel-wise always happened. And always will happen. Make sense? You cannot alter history because you always did. Therefore, whatever alterations you made were actually what really happened. Okay? There's no origination point, if you will. Time is a linear line. The second uh, idea of time travel, which is what is posited in a very vague way in this episode, is that you can, there is a singular timeline, but you can alter this timeline at will. So, for example, if you know, uh, City on the Edge of Forever, they go back, time is altered. But then they fix things, time is altered again, and goes back to its default state, probably with some changes and some edits. So that's, that's type 2 time travel. Time is an editable, malleable thing. I prefer the former, though. Which is my second idea. I would have had them be like, oh my god, we've, we've beamed them back in time. We've been contacting Starfleet. We're not sure what to do. And Starfleet trying to advise us on this. And we, we, we've using some of the people there. And they're, they're kind of coordinating us. And blah, 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 blah. Right? But get rid of the time alteration. Because, A, anybody who was paying attention to this episode would be like, why hasn't time changed for the fact that they're back there? Dax has been interacting with one of the biggest names in, in the, his particular mogul media empire of the era. And Cisco and, uh, Cisco and Bashir have been interacting with everyone they've been walking into constantly. Why is the timeline completely unaltered? I would want that question to be in the background of the audience. Now, the answer is very simple. That there never was a Gabriel Bell. That Gabriel Bell was, and always is, Cisco. That it was a persona he basically invented because he himself read up on and studied the Gabe, you know, Gabriel Bell and the Bell riots. And then, right, you could kind of see the, the loop here that would be created. Now, there's a few holes in that, and I'll admit that. But I still think that would be better than the complete nonsense that we see on display. Which brings me to the third option. And I came up with this third option more recently while I was doing uh, recording or watching and prepping for this episode. The third option is to eject time travel entirely. Hear me out for a second. Once upon a time, there was an episode of Star Trek Voyager, uh, 1159. That's the name of the episode, I believe. I actually like that episode. I know it's kind of a divisive episode, but I rather enjoyed it. For those of you who don't remember, it's an episode about Janeway learning about one of her distant relatives who worked on this big, you know, interstellar kind of base-building project. But most of the episode was back in that era, back in the past, following her uh, ancestor, who was played by Kate Mulgrew, and just following her life and her activities back there and the nature of how this came to be. Now, I can understand why some people don't like that episode, and that's totally valid and fine, but I have to give credit to Voyager for being bold enough to do something like that. I know that sounds weird, 
but it is actually more brave and risky than it sounds to to have an episode of a mainline show, especially a science fiction show and a continuing show like Star Trek, and have actors who are present, and only a couple of them, play completely different roles in a way that is directly unconnected to the modern story. That is a bold thing to do, and very risky, and it would have been very easy to screw up. Some people would argue they did screw it up. But you already see what I'm saying here. That's what I would do. Just have Avery Brooks play Gabriel Bell. And just have this, this, this whole recreation of the back. Maybe make it, if you want it directly connected, say it's a holodeck recreation. Show them actually literally recreating. I know that removes any tension from the moment. I don't care. To be completely blunt, this is Star Trek. Of course there's no tension. They're going to get out of this. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being so damn cynical. But I... Because, see, the point to me is they wanted to do an analysis and, a, and an in-depth look at just how messed up the homelessness and joblessness problem was. And this was the 90s when they were doing this. Ira Stephen Bear himself mentioned about walking along Santa Monica. I've been to Santa Monica many times. I uh, used to have family who lived very close to there. And there would be people just going about their business as if nothing was unusual. And there's people just laying on the street, just hanging out or resting or trying to do what they can because they have nowhere to go. And people just kind of ignored them. They, were, they weren't even part of the decor. They were just background noise at that point. They wanted to do a, 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 that point. They wanted to hit that social issue. They wanted to look at the concept of sanctuaries and locking away all the homeless people so we don't have to look at it and we don't have to deal with it. And that's fine. I really feel there are better ways to pull this across. And I know every idea I have just mentioned does have its own flaws and issues as well. I'm more than willing to admit that. If, Admittedly, I think I'd probably go with the Type 1 time travel thing if I had to. Because that way it's a little safer. We're still involving the crew, and there's still a dilemma to solve. And the audience isn't aware of the fact that these events have already happened. So in other words, we're not 100% sure what's going on until he says, I'm Gabriel Bell, and that kind of clues in the audience what's going on. Anyways. Quick note. What the hell is with San Francisco and time travel? In case you think I'm being facetious... The original crew went back in time to Star Trek to, to to San Francisco in Star Trek IV, the 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 uh, uh, the voyage home. God, I couldn't think of the subtitle for a second. In Star Trek: Next Generation, the crew go back to San Francisco in Time Zero. In Star Trek: Voyager, Harry goes back here in uh, Non Sequitur, and here we go back here during uh, past tense. What the hell is up with San Francisco? <laughs> like. Is Q just sitting around being like, you know, I really always did like the Golden Gate Bridge. Anyways. So a couple of notes on the episode itself before I start hitting on the big topics. First of all, I want to give special praise to Dick Miller. He plays Vin. And I bet you're thinking, who? And that's fine. He's a much bigger role in the second half. So I'm going to save most of my discussion about him later. Um, I do like how Dax is in this episode. While she's a little bit too fake... She is also very adaptive and very good at thinking on her on her feet. It, it comes across immediately. She realizes, oh, unusual alien environment, got to adapt, got to pretend. She, I kind of like that Dax, of all people, is the person who is that, you know, capable of keeping up, since you'd think someone with that many lifetimes of experience would. Also, I don't remember exactly how old Dax is, but there's a chance Dax, Dax, the symbiote, was actually alive at this period of time, and thus would have a little bit better and more immediate recognition of older time 
cosmetics, clothing, you know, the city, the equipment, all that kind of a thing. And thus would be able to, you know, it'd be kind of like Guinan going back in time. She would have a better chance of being like, oh, I recognize this, right? That's theory crafting, but I just pointed out. I also like the fact that the gentleman, I can't remember his name, the rich gentleman, just kind of walks right by Dax. Pause. Pauses, then. Now, keep this in mind, because this, this was done deliberately. This is deliberate on the behalf of the creators. They just walk, he just walks right by her as if she's part of the, part of the scenery. Then he stops. He pauses and he looks back. It's because, well, because Terry Farrell is an attractive woman. What? <laughs> there is absolutely no denying and no getting around the idea that this gentleman is being nice to this woman because she's an attractive woman. Now, I would like to say, under ideal circumstances, that maybe someone might be willing to reach out and help just about any one of those circumstances, but that would be a lie. Now, as it happens, Dax knows how to act rich, and she does a good job of, for the most part, blending in. She only screws up twice. Uh, once when she says, you know, don't count on it, when she's talking about the, the issues in the States, and how things are so much better in the States than in Europe. And the other is the fact that she just does not catch on to the fact that this guy is a bigwig and she should probably pretend to recognize him or at least come up with a convenient story otherwise. I do give her credit for the fact that she literally hacks her own new ID chip and money. <laughs> it's just a nice little touch there. I don't have much to say on, on Dax in this other than what I just said, but I do like the rich people party. Hear me out. The episode spends a lot of time in the sanctuary, and it it's actually fairly clean, relatively speaking. I know that sounds horrible, but I've lived in a gutter. And I have also seen just how dirty dirty can get, in fiction, but also in real life. And this is fairly mild compared to how bad this can get. Now, that makes sense. This is Star Trek, after all. This is not Warhammer 40K. We do not need to see children killing each other for the for the prize of being able to eat the dead. We don't need to go that far, okay? There's no need for Grimdark. So I'm not complaining about that. However, having given that proviso, we see the Sanctuary District, and it is kind of a mess. It's not particularly well lit. It's not particularly clean. It doesn't have a particularly large amount of resources, and a lot of people are basically just hanging out, doing whatever, because they have nowhere else to go. Now, then you contrast immediately with the rich people party. Everyone there is in nice outfits. They have different cos costume designs. They made a point of having each person being in a slightly different outfit. And this is a very interesting point, and I credit the creators for this. We have an Asian man, a black woman, and a white man, along with her, the, the European woman, all of them coordinating and all of them having speaking roles. And if you look in the background, there's a decent variety of people, too. Now, here's why I credit that. I credit that because it shows the idea that at this particular point in human history, which is in the future from us now, but obviously for their past, that there are still class lines. There's still racism or biasism or classism or elitism or whatever ism you want to call it, but the lines have shifted. Rather than being biased because you happen to be of a gender or biased because of your skin color, it is now biased because of how much money you have. Now, there's already some kind of bias along those lines in real life, but I thought that was a neat, if horrible, way to go for, for science fiction, right? It, fe it feels like it makes a natural sort of sense that after a certain amount of time, the, the, the lines of elitism and classism would b lend themselves more towards affluence and power rather than something more arbitrary, right? 
especially since, and, and this is pure speculation, but I like to think that some of those people in that time use those kind of things as an as an indicator of how enlightened they are. We don't we don't uh, discriminate against gender anymore. We don't discriminate against skin color anymore. We are far better than that. Instead, we just discriminate against money, right? <laughs> I do think that's an interesting little maneuver, and I do think they did that on purpose. So. There's a tiny little bit of world building, and it's really tiny, but I gotta comment on it because it made my mind just start going. Where uh, Vin, the guy played by Dick Miller I mentioned earlier, he goes to scan their ID stuff and to scan their fingerprints and their scans, and it's mentioned, okay, the government, uh, the government discount has already been processed. In other words, that one little thing and the ad that play make this a commercial venture. Mean, it means that this is not actually a government standardized organization. That they, they are working for the government, but they still have to pay for the services they need to do their jobs. That implies a whole level of corporate interactability with these sanctuaries. It also implies the level of acceptability that things like paying for little things or ads have become in that setting. Given that this episode came out back in the 90s, that's kind of horrifying to think about considering now. For those of you watching in the future, this, this video is being recorded in the year 2018. And, uh, yeah, kind of dark when you think about it that way. I'm curious how bad things will get in the next decade. Maybe they'll get better. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a Vulcan moment. That'd be awesome. <sighs> Before I get into the big topics, let's talk about uh, Webb. Webb is another side character. He'll have more presence in the second part. He has this big thing. We, we must let them know. We must not be forgotten. We need them to see that we're decent people. You know, We need them to know they promised us jobs. We just need jobs. And they need to reinstate the such and such act. That'll come up more in the second part, and I'll talk about it more there. But I mention it here because... I feel like it's one of the weaker aspects of the two-parter. They, Cisco himself brings this up too. He he posits the idea that the Bell riots will make people aware of the situation, which will cause a wave of public backlash, which causes the sanctuaries to get set, shut down, and then things get better. That's naive. I'm sorry. If the core problem is we don't have jobs. That is a horrific problem that ha doesn't really have a good solution, does it? There is no really good answer to we have no jobs unless you have a degree of control that's at the national level and are deliberately and, and intently focused on trying to solve that. What I mean by that, to explain a little bit more, because I said that a little bit weirdly, most nations won't try to solve that because they don't care or they don't have reason to. Not the nation as a whole. The nation has a reason to care. But remember, a nation isn't a person. A nation's a few begrillion people. Even at the national level, you've got... I'm not going to go down the list. You've got people in charge, their aides, the people giving them information, the people who actually implement choices, the people who implement their dis directives, and so forth and so on. You have hundreds, if not thousands of people who are all in charge of a nation. And all of those people have their own little perspectives and their own agendas and their own selfishness. Some of them may actually care. Some of them may be purely greedy. I don't know. They're people. If you were playing a video game right now, I've used this parallel a lot. If you were playing a video game right, right now of, uh, I don't know, um, social problems sim, 
or something, right? Actually, that sounds like kind of like an interesting game. I might look into making that someday. Social problem sim. And you, you load up a scenario, and the scenario is you are in charge of Made-Up-A-Stan, <laughs> which is in South America. And Made-Up-A-Stan has a critical job loss problem. There's a horrific unemployment rate. Now, any of you watched my stream during Detroit, uh, Detroit Become Human, I mentioned how horrific the level of unemployment they showed is. And I, I bothered to just stop and talk about that unemployment thing for a while, because that's a big issue. Because unemployment is a big issue, and it's not an easily solved one. Now, you as an individual, if you were in charge of this country, and you were the one doing all this stuff, you might be able to solve that. Maybe. Maybe. But an actual government isn't an individual who is going with predefined rules and pre-calculated algorithms so things will behave in, a, in an understandable and predictable fashion. There's no such solution in real life. There are ways to solve uh, homelessness and joblessness, but they don't necessarily work, right? Which I suppose, let's just go ahead and get into the big question here. Let's talk about homelessness. Let's talk about unemployment. Um, really quick, Bashir has a line, which I find hysterical. Uh, he says something along the lines of, sometimes you wonder if we really are that evolved, if we're that better, if if something pushed us, you know, humans, to be this fearful and this terrified, if we would revert back to this. I'm paraphrasing. I find that funny because of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven. It looks like it's going to be about a season or so. Yeah, uh, looks like about, oh, actually, no, it is literally one season. Season four, episode 11. Uh, that topic will come back in. So I'm going to say, no spoilers, it's just, it's funny that he pointed that out. I, you, you could tell the idea was in the minds of the creators of the show. Oh God, what do I say about homelessness and unemployment? One of the things that I've noticed is that there are people who seem to have this automatic assumption that people who are unemployed are lazy and selfish. How many of you have ever encountered that particular stereotype? I don't mean as in actually seen someone like that. I mean encountered someone presuming that biased stereotype. And I will raise my hand. I've never actually seen someone who's unemployed who was legitimately lazy or whatever. On some rare occasions, I've known some people who have refused to go try to get a job, but there's usually some mitigating circumstances there, like, oh, I don't know, having just had a kid, for example. And then once that's done, they go to get a job, right? It's... God, where do I start? This is such a large, overwhelming topic. That's part of the point of the episode, too. Their point is that the, the problem is so huge that no one can do anything about it, that no one can even comprehend it. And everyone just kind of assumes that they can't deal with it, and so accept that they can't deal with it. Now, the first and most obvious problem is the very idea of unemployment. I keep going back to unemployment because homelessness... In this, in this context, under these circumstances, is a byproduct of unemployment. Someone who has the ability to work and, and function in a society should, I know there's asterisks attached to this, should have the ability to therefore ha have a place to stay of their own. It might not be the best place, but they will be able to get a place where they can have a bed and all those fun things, right? Now, God, I'm sorry, I've been at so many 
levels of economic status in my life. I am actually probably better off right now financially than I ever have in my entire life. And I come from a money family. I've talked about this before. Uh, my own grandparents are quite literally millionaires. Um, and <laughs> I don't know. I, I, one of the bigger problems being faced here is the idea that handouts don't solve anything. Well, I shouldn't say that. It can be presumed that handouts don't solve anything. That if you just walk up to people who are homeless and say, here's some money, that that doesn't actually solve any of the root problems. That they then take this money and it now becomes a regular stipend, which they are reliant upon, they could at least get homes. And that could be considered to be a morally and ethically acceptable thing. However, <laughs> there is a fairly basic economic principle here. Unless you're being an idiot and literally printing money, money is a finite resource. An economic system if you're going to cycle more money into these kind of programs, it needs to come from somewhere. Now, I am very firmly in the belief that there are there is overspending in aspects of society, at least here in the States. I can't speak for other countries because I haven't studied the economic models of other countries all that well, unless we go back in time about a century and a half. That's about when my knowledge starts showing up there. So... There is overspending absolutely on certain aspects of budget. However, I can also tell you that there is significant and de deleterious underspending on other aspects of budget, which also need to be raised. I point to medical as one of the biggest examples. And I'm not even talking about free health care. I'm talking about the VA specifically. The VA is critically, well, I shouldn't say critically, that's overselling it, is underfunded. The VA is underfunded. I'm just going to say that. Boom. That's never mind any of the other possibilities that exist with that. So getting back to my point, if the government involved in whatever country it is that has a homelessness problem is willing to set to to pull money from somewhere and just set aside money to say here, that could be considered a good thing, but you could also see very easily how that could be a bad thing for two major reasons. The first is it might build the the expectation of it. If Bob, who works, makes X amount of money to get a place to live, but Bobina does not work and gets X minus 5 money to get a place to live, what is the motivation of having the job? Now, obviously, some people will have a motivation to have the job. Some people will actually want to go out and work because some people just think differently than other people. But you could see how that might grasp more people into the unemployed territory than it otherwise would. Now that could still be argued to be a positive thing because then under those circumstances there might be more job openings which allow some of the, home, you know, the, the unemployed people who want to work to be able to move into the working field. But that does still mean we're basically sifting people around so that they're now people who are basically just existing in an unemployed status and being happy with that. And to put this as bluntly as I possibly can, People who are unemployed are a problem at a national level, uh, who are consistently unemployed. Obviously, unemployment rates' entire purpose is to show a cycle of people losing jobs, getting new jobs, and cycling through the industry and being promoted and shifting industries and blah, 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 blah. I understand that. Okay, let's, let's not go into the real nitty-gritty in economics here. I could do that. Let's not. So, a significant portion of people, it's like debt. That's a great parallel. It's like debt. I just thought of that. Now, here's the thing. A country being in debt is a good thing. No, it really is. But the problem is most countries stay in debt with the same debts over an extended period of time. A country should pay off debts 
and remove those debts and then accrue new debts and then pay off those debts and accrue new debts. This is actually a fluid and healthy economic system. A regular repeating cycle of new debts. Okay? I, I, again, I'm not going to go full depth, and I hope you're with me on this. But the idea here is, in, in, in summary, if you do this, what you are doing is you're ensuring money is moving as fast and as far as it can. And that is the very definition of an economy. The movement and flow of goods and services. Right? So, same thing with unemployment. If we, I know we're basically breaking down people into a resource, but bear with me. The more people you have who are cycling through unemployment, well, I shouldn't say more, but basically cycling unemployment is a good thing. But just like the debt example, if a large chunk of people just clunk, just sit here and stay unemployed, that is a, not just a mark of stagnation, that is basically serving as a sink, a, a, a whirlpool of financial interaction that's going down here. Now, whatever they're spending on might be put back into the economy, but whatever they're spending is not going to be significant because they're probably only be given enough in order to survive, not exist. And if all you have is enough to survive, you are not actually functionally adding to the economy in a significant matter, which means that money isn't flowing, which means the problem just gets worse. This is a, this is a seesaw effect problem because it will get worse the more, it will get worser the more it gets worse. This leaves us with our core problem. While you could, as a band-aid effort, theoretically try to offer these people this money and try to cycle this in this way, that's not going to solve the core problem. The core problem is the jobs. If those jobs don't exist, you, it's, you can't just create jobs. It doesn't work that way. I know that sounds strange. Now, there are ways to encourage jobs. There are ways to push jobs. But you can't just and say, all right, you 200,000 people, you are all now employed at the, the Department of Redundancy Department, and your job is to sit here and, and press the J button on the keyboard for eight hours a day and then you get to go home. That's what creating a job means, just to make this fundamentally clear. So we're all using the same terminology. Creating a job is inventing a task that has no need or purpose and then cycling money through that job into the people who are doing it. Engendering or trying to generate a job means trying to basically accomplish something that is a work or a function or a new... Um, or encouraging certain programs, or encouraging certain industries, or encouraging certain practices in industries in order to try and in encourage other groups within your own uh, infrastructure, other companies more specifically, or other unions, or even other individual business owners, to be more inclined to have a reason to open up new jobs. Because if Bob... Everyone in this world is named Bob. If Bob down at the corner store who, who sells liquor, well, there's Bob, and he himself could basically run that job by himself. He has no need of an employee. Now, he can hire three or four people, but all he's doing is basically reducing his own paycheck to give them a paycheck. Nothing's really being added to the system because they're not doing anything to add to the system. But if a government, local or, or large scale, macroscopic or microscopic, says, hey, we're going to add this kind of program, which is going to encourage you to expand. We're going to give you uh, reduced real estate uh, tax rates, for example, uh, less property taxes if you are a, current, a currently existing business owner and expand to a new building, right? 
This is a really basic example, so please forgive me. I know some of you are just rolling your eyes at me right now. So Bob over there decides to open up a second store. Now he has a lot of other things to deal with. He needs to be buying in. He needs to be bringing in more liquor to, to to make the dog happy. He needs to be bringing in more liquor in order to afford to stock the second store or split up his own stock amongst the two stores. Maybe different types in one store and different types in the other. I don't know. He needs someone to manage the other store. He needs people to arrange transportation and coordination. He needs accounting work to be done. He needs more jobs. You, you can see how this kind of works in this situation. This is actually generating new jobs. And these people are now doing something that can engender new business, which allows more things to cycle through the economy. And from a purely human perspective, if you were being hired to basically, literally or metaphorically, press J on a keyboard all day every day, or if you're being hired to do a job, the latter tends to be a lot easier on the morale and to be more fulfilling from an individual perspective. I myself was actually given a filler job once in my life as a courtesy, as a kindness, because I was having a really hard time finding a job at one point in my life. At, well, at more than one point, but at the one point I'm thinking of right now. And it was a filler job, and God, I hated it. I was thankful. Don't mistake me. Of course I was thankful, but I wasn't doing anything. I ended up working with that gentleman because I happened to have gone to school for accounting and basically became that guy's accountant so I could actually contribute to that job. And you know what? That was a lot better for me. That reduced my stress levels. That made me a lot more comfortable with what I was doing. And it made me feel like I was actually accomplishing something. And as much as I've been sitting here and just chatting and rambling on and on and on about economic models and national levels, God damn it, we can't forget the human element. We cannot forget the personal perspective. The one person who is on the ground level who is pressing J. You can see how homelessness is so naturally tied into this topic. Let me sh I'm only going to say one additional thing about homelessness, because I've really kind of covered all of that in the economic discussion I just said. You know how hard it is to get a job when you don't have a place to live? I, do, you? do you? I'm sorry. Because <laughs> I do. There's a understandable but very uh, widespread bias. You know, dress up nice, got clean. Went in for the interview. Hey, yeah. Uh, you didn't put a address for your, for your mail. Yeah. I, I don't have a place to live right now. Oh. Okay. Uh, what's your phone number? I don't, I don't have a phone right now. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll talk to you in, right? <sighs> I mean, even the dog wouldn't want to hire someone who doesn't have a home. But the, and that's, so, it's funny because it's so logical and it's so understandable why a business owner or a manager would be, or a corporate uh, uh, recruiter would be so less likely to hire someone for a job, even if they're qualified, because they happen to be homeless at the moment. However, if you flip the perspectives for a moment, it's also very frustrating to be in that position when the one thing you need to no longer be homeless is being restricted from you because you are homeless. Right? <laughs> right? You can see how it just becomes a seesaw. How the worse it gets, the worse it gets. I'm sorry, thank you all for listening to me, to my horrible rambling and my stupidity. Um, 
and this ridiculous time travel. It was actually a relief to talk about time travel at the beginning of this. How weird is that? Oh, thank God I get to talk about time travel for a bit. Whew. I do find the next episode to be better overall. This episode's some good setup. It really is. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics of the episode rather than the topics it brings up next week. I'll see you around, guys.